Well, turn with me, would you, um, to the book of Revelation. We're going to go right for it uh, today. If you are just joining us, either online or here in person, we have been on quite the journey. Oh, my goodness. Really, the journey has gone on for several years. You might not have recognized it, but even way back on our study of Genesis, I was setting the table, our study of Jonah, remember that? Our study of Daniel, our study of the letters of Revelation, uh, last winter, our our study this spring of, of the prophecies of Revelation, all of those things have been pointing toward one thing. All of those things have been um, inviting us to experience the goodness of God. Today we find ourselves toward the end. Um, you might remember that last week was, um, uh, excuse me, two weeks ago, we took a break last week for Pentecost, two weeks ago was was the last of a series of sevens. It was the last, it was the seven bowls, the judgment of God uh, upon the gods of this earth again. And it was, it was such a dramatic time as we saw the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, including the people of the earth. And, and, and we recognize that that we can worship God even in the midst of his wrath, that his wrath, his, his, his measured response to injustice is a part of his nature and character. But, but I love, I love the book of Revelation because, because it gives us perspective, especially us being now the people of God. When we look at something so terrible as the seven bowls of judgment being poured out, um, it, it's hard to keep perspective. And many times we're challenged. Um, we're challenged uh, by people, our friends and coworkers, who say, "How could you worship a God who would pour out His judgment like this?" And it's what I love about Revelation that that mixed in with all these sevens. We've seen five sets of seven. With all these sevens, are these interludes, right? I just want to highlight as we begin today the importance of interludes. Now, I'm so tempted to go off on a, on a tangent about Sabbath and the importance of building interludes into your life. Why? Because, because it's when, in those quiet moments that you're able to process and understand the busy moments, right? In those quiet moments that you can hear that still, small voice of God helping you understand your circumstances. But I want to suggest to you in particular that, that interludes, especially in Revelation, as we've seen them between every set of seven, these interludes are important for understanding the meaning of the book, the meaning of the experiences that we're reading about, right? It's also important for understanding the cost. The cost. I mean, it's, it's very tempting to be at play in the fields of the Lord. It's very tempting to to find just a little bit of comfort from spiritual security and then to take God for granted. And, and Revelation has disabused us of any, uh, any of that kind of notion. God is not slow in bringing justice. And, and, and God is still active and moving us toward a conclusion of this that, that is very expensive. It'll cost you everything. I'm not talking about finances. I'm, I'm talking about your love and your loyalties. So interludes are important for understanding meaning. They're important for understanding the cost, and they're important for understanding the ultimate end. 
the ultimate end. We may experience that like every generation that has gone before us. You've had those moments and you said, this has got to be it. I mean, um, we're playing God and God cannot stand by and allow this to happen. Every generation has thought about that. But in Revelation, and in particular in these next couple of chapters, um, we are gonna, uh, we're gonna get to understand a little bit what the ultimate end will be. So in Revelation, uh, we're actually covering, despite a certain preacher's whining last week about me giving him too much scripture, not naming names, but, but, um, we're gonna cover, um, three chapters. And you say, how in the world are we gonna do that? Not well. What we're gonna do is just give you enough hints to be able to go back in and see it. When you look at, at Revelation 17, 18, the beginning of 19, it's overwhelming until you realize there are only a couple of things going on there. And Lord willing, I'll give you enough hints to be able to go back in and see that. But join me right now in, I'm just going to introduce it by the first few verses of Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Well, I better pick up um, to just provide continuity a couple of verses from 16. We saw as the last angel. Remember, every time you got to the seventh, there was a nesting doll. Remember that, Kristen? There was a nesting doll. It opened up another seven, right? This one didn't. This last angel, the seventh angel of judgment, there was not a nesting doll in there. We have gotten to the end of the sequence of events that that God wanted so much for us to understand. And now today he provides insight in this interlude to understanding what's going on. But the seventh angel, verse 17 of chapter 16, that's confusing, isn't it? Verse 17 of chapter 16 says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying the same thing that Jesus had said at the cross, It is finished. It is done. And there were this, this, um, these examples of the presence of God, the flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as it never had been seen since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. Look at this. And God remembered Babylon. That's going to be important for us today. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Eden? Or in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, right? Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. Why? What was in the cup, right? The wrath of God for the sins of the world. And so many times we've had that opportunity. I've got chills going down my spine right now. So many times we've had that opportunity to recognize that all of my sins in the past were in that cup. All of my sins right now were in that cup, right? All of my sins for the future, forever, were in that cup. So when Jesus said, not my will but yours be done, and, and took that cup and figuratively drank from that cup, he was taking upon himself the very wrath of God. Come back with me to to, um, verse 19 of Revelation chapter 16. God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. 
and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they still cursed God. They did not repent. The plague was so severe. Now we pick up the story. Then one of the seven angels who had who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. This is about the time most of us go, I'm out of here. Right? Um, uh, wow, he's given us this imagery. We're going to see a couple key pieces of this imagery. There's this great prostitute who's seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with, here it is again, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So just anchor in your mind. Prostitute, okay? Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and seven horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand, there it is, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon. Babylon. How many times have we come back to this? Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, look at this, drunk, drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of the martyrs or witnesses of Jesus, the very word of God. Really? Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, Again, my great desire is is that I can give you just enough clues. Because that's what Revelation has been about, right? Giving us these little clues that take us to all these special places in Scripture where we gain insight and understanding. Not just just about the world, not just about end times, but but about ourselves, right? About ourselves as well. Let's let's just anchor ourselves in a couple. Two important symbols here. Again, uh, in Revelation 17, 18, all the way to 19. The first one is this attractive woman who symbolizes something, right? What is it that she symbolizes? If you go to seven commentaries, you'll find 15 opinions on what she symbolizes. Um, Let me try and simplify it by saying she symbolizes the world, but in particularly the seduction of the world. She symbolizes worldly seduction. Therefore, she's a symbol of infidelity, right? Of, of someone who, who um, prostitutes themselves, but not, but not just themselves, but causes others to prostitute themselves as well, right? A symbol of infidelity. Now, let me just stop for a second and and, and think about this word prostitute for a second, right? Um, uh, it's kind of, uh, in our culture, we don't use that word even though prostitution is everywhere around us. We don't use the word adultery even though adultery is all around us, right? But we all understand what it is, right? A prostitute is someone who has been in covenant relationship and broken it. 
right? And broken it. I want you to understand that that this is not a um, uh, uh, end of the Bible railing against sexual immorality. Um, there's something much deeper going on here. God is saying there are those who have been in covenant relationship with me who have prostituted themselves with the world, right? With the world. Prostitute is someone who's broken covenant relationship. Why? Well, for as I just reflected on it in my mind, I said, well, for temporary pleasure. Some do that just for temporary pleasure. They know it's not going to last longer than a, a few moments, right? My heart just broke last week as a 23-year-old friend of mine overdosed just on a, a moment's decision on his lunch hour to to um, to to indulge and in, in pleasure just for a moment, right? And it killed him. It killed him. For those who would indulge in temporary pleasure, for those who would indulge in temporary gain, temporary gain. If I just fudge on this, I can set myself up for life, right? If I just fudge on this a little bit, I can temporarily gain advantage over someone else. Maybe most importantly, a prostitute is someone who has broken a covenant relationship for a temporary identity. That's the greatest, the greatest temptation our culture is facing right now. I will give you an identity that it will look like most of the world will accept and even cheer, but God doesn't accept it and God doesn't cheer. And we're fooling ourselves if we find our identity in anything other than Him. So, so, um, this this first woman symbolizes worldly seduction, in particular the symbol of infidelity, but she's also a symbol of idolatry. You see all the symbols of royalty and wealth uh, on this purple and scarlet and gold and silver. All these all these different symbols of temporary things that cannot give life. And then very clearly, she's a symbol. Of immorality, of immorality. There is a God, and there, He did create us, and He knows the boundaries within which we'll flourish, right? And if we step outside those boundaries, we will not flourish, right? But this woman is a symbol of the attractiveness of immorality in all its forms. So, who is this woman, right? This here again, you're going to see a lot of. A lot of interpretations of who this woman is. I want to just suggest to you that that this woman is a symbol of people who give lip service to covenant relationship with God. But we're seduced by the temptations of the world. And why do I say give lip service? God is sovereign, right? Before the foundation of the world, he wrote your name in the book, right? But all around us and, and even... Among us are people who enjoy the, um, the, all the benefits that come from, from being in community with the people of God, um, but have not entered into that covenant relationship. They identify as a follower of Jesus, but then they live according to the ways of the world. And, and it's a symbol, this woman is a symbol of those who have been seduced from a relationship with God by the things of the world. This woman is not alone, right? Um, 
well, excuse me, let me stop for a second and say, it's confusing in Revelation 17 and 18 because all of a sudden it stops talking about a woman, starts talking about a city, starts talking about Babylon, right? And in fact, I chose as the title of the sermon because I'm a fan of the Angel Has Fallen, London Has Fallen movies, all those fallen movies. Babylon has fallen, right? That's the declaration of the angel here. But what is, what is, that mean? What is, what does Babylon mean? Do you remember in Genesis um, 11? In Genesis 11, there's the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that? And, 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 and people, the people begin building a, um, a tower to reach to the heavens, right? And, and in, in 11.4, they say, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So so there is there is this representation in this woman of, of people who want to make a name for themselves. I keep looking for Beth. She's not here this week. I keep looking back to get affirmation from Beth and she's not there. And I'm not feeling sorry for her. She's on a beach in Florida, I think. So. <laughs> My goodness, um what is what is this humanism Making our humanity, God, makes us want to make a name for ourselves. And, and God will have none of it. And so he, do you remember? He, he confused their language. That's what Babel means. Confusion. And I thought that was so appropriate that this woman is called Babylon the Great, right? Because, because she brings confusion to people about what is true and what is right, what is noble, right? She brings confusion. The world brings confusion to God's people about what is genuinely important. Brings confusion about what will bring you pleasure. This will bring you pleasure. No, that will bring you death, right? It, it brings confusion about what will bring you gain. This will, this will make your life perfect. You'll be set for life, right? And then COVID hits or something changes. Brings confusion about what your primary identity is. You're defined by your possessions. Or you're defined by your human relationships. Or you're defined by by your security. It brings confusion about your identity. What are you defined by? Who are you? child of God, right? You are a child of God. And between Father's Day and Mother's Day, so mindful how precious that relationship is. I'm sure you want to smack them once in a while, right? But, 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 oh my goodness, you go to the mat for them. You, you'd lay down your life for them, would you not? Yeah. You are a child of God. So, so this woman symbolizes for us worldly seduction. This, this world, this woman symbolizes for us as well confusion. But there's another, uh, there's another creature here. There's another element here, and it's the beast, right? We have seen that before. If you're just joining us, it sounds so odd, but, but beast is an imagery that's been used over and over again in scripture. That's why we stop. And went back to Daniel to discover what it means. Do you remember Daniel 7? They saw a vision. John saw a vision of 
these four beasts, right? What were these beasts, right? This woman sitting on a beast that symbolizes earthly kingdoms. And for, for brevity of time, I'm just going to go for it. Embedded in 1718, there's the clear influence of those earthly kingdoms. They are influenced by Satan, right? But notice that there's, there's several expressions of it. There, there is these earthly kingdoms as expressed by those in political power, right? He calls them in 18.9, the kings of the earth. And, and, and um, we might today uh, consider that politics, right? The, the people in power over us, right? But, but it's really interesting in the United States right now that, that we have to ask ourselves, who has the real power in the United States? Is it the politicians? Um, oh, goodness, I was about to say something I probably regret. Um, no. No. Who... Who has the power to um, to shut mouths, right? Who has the power to to cancel people, right? Who? Um, it's not those in political powers. I can't help myself. I'm sorry. I'm not sure that they can find their way out of a paper bag, right? Right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And it's not a judgment on them. It's a judgment on on us. On us. We voted them in, right? Chaos reigns in our sanctuary. If you're online. Press pause. Um, politicians aren't really in power, right? Who's really in power? I could name names, but but it's probably um, it's it's probably those in economic power, right? The merchants is the word Revelation uses. The merchants of the world, right? So there is political power. Make no mistake. There's kings. There's presidents. There's political parties. But the but but especially right in this moment in United States history, um, a lot of the power is controlled by those in control of the economy, uh, and those those grand merchants, right, who by a decision in an office somewhere can directly affect the lives of people all over the world. Uh, we were doing something last night. Uh, um, Chelsea's in town, and we were we were looking something up, and, and I was astounded to find out that in some small country in the backside of the world, there's they have they have every access to the internet, everything everything that we do, right? And 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 uh, the pervasiveness of the power of economics um, is much greater than any one country or certainly any one president, and so. Um, those in economic power, the merchants of the earth. But lest we think that we're going to get out from under this, there's a third person that's mentioned in in, um, in Revelation 18, 17, and, that, and those are the people that get personal gain from the first two. People that get personal gain from the political decisions that are made. People that get personal gain from oppression that might happen economically, right? Um, yeah, sure, millions of people might suffer as a result of that, but I did okay. Right? I came out okay. And and um, Revelation 18 has no mercy on that. Um, we are just as culpable. We are just as culpable as either the politicians or the merchants. Wow. Cheerful message today, Pastor Dave. Thank you so much. Um, uh, check me. Test me. Go back to the word. See if it's not there. You'll see it. That whole of 18 is about those three categories of people, right? 
And it's, it's calling us to examine ourselves. You know, let's use this week in preparation for the sacrament of communion next week to, to examine ourselves and see if, if we've relied on political power, to see if we've relied on e- economic extortion, to see if we have relied on, on personal benefit, right? To make our little kingdoms. Well, I want you to note something very important here. The woman and the beast look like they're in cohort, uh, co- whatever the word is, cohort. Cahoots, thank you. They are in cahoots together. Um, right up until the time when the beast eats her. Okay? You ever, there's people that have wild animals in their home, right? Oh, I got a, I got a tame lion in my house. No, you don't. Right? Tame and lion don't go together, right? But what do we, what do we let into our house? What do we let into our hearts? What do we let into our minds, right? Uh, what happens over time is that you, you get a lion when it's little, right, and cute and cuddly. Yeah, it's got sharp claws, but it's so cuddly, right? And then it, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, little by little, right? And all of a sudden, it's dominating your home, right? But it's still tame, right? And then all of a sudden, it does what lions do. Beasts will turn on you. And this beast that she allured, that she temporarily identified herself, that the world and the kingdoms of this earth came together and it looked like such a great partnership until the beast destroyed her, until it devoured her. I just want to note that that was God's purpose for the beast. Just like Babylon was God's purpose for judging the people of Israel, um, the, the beast was God's purpose for judging the world, right? This woman. But the woman also disappears from the earth. There will be a time when all these things that look so bright and shiny right now, when all these things that are alluring us, when all these things that we're putting our trust in are no more. They are no more. They will disappear from the earth. And Revelation is telling us it's because of the judgment of God. Wow, I sure hope I can tie this this up today because um, this is dramatic stuff. What does this mean? What does this mean? Don't be confused. The world is full of deceptive attractions, right? That's the purpose. Everyone can understand the attraction of of sexual immorality. That's why he uses the analogy of that, right? Because everybody can understand it, but but the picture is much broader than that. That's, That's one attraction among many. Sensual pleasures are one attraction, but so are material possessions, right? So is the promise that the world gives of satisfaction, right? Which you can never give. So is the hope of security or the insatiable lust for power, right? How about, how about the lure of pride, right? I had told someone earlier this week that you can encapsulate, now don't do this as a chicken way out here, but, but you can encapsulate, John encapsulated all of Revelation 17, 18, first part of 19, in three verses in 1 John. Same guy writing, right? In 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I love the world and I... No. No. Right. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. How does the NIV put it? You remember that? Um, lust. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the boastful pride of life, NIV, are not from the Father, but from the world. And guess what? The world is passing away with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides, tabernacles, dwells forever. The world is full of deceptive attractions, but it's also headed for a definite conclusion. It will end, beloved. So if all your hope is in this world, it will end. I'm not saying it will necessarily end in your lifetime, although it really looks like it. Um, But when you come to the end of your lifetime and all your hopes can put in those things, you find that they're empty. They're empty, right? Love for the world. Excuse me, let me back up. This world will be completely destroyed. It will be suddenly destroyed. It will be eternally destroyed. So, So here's the bottom line for Revelation 17 and 18 and 19. Here's the bottom line for 1 John 2, right? Love for the world and love for God cannot coexist. If you think that you're doing a pretty good job of balancing them, um, you're mistaken. Love for the world pushes out love for God. And love for God, here's the good news, pushes out love for the world. So every single one of us has a choice. Come on up, worship team, if you would. Every single one of us has a choice. We can choose to love the things of this world, right? All these things that we've named that give us temporary pleasure, right? Temporary satisfaction. But but they're fleeting, right? Our pleasures will be temporary, but our destiny will be eternal separation. Fancy way of saying hell. Our destiny will be hell if our trust is in things of the world. We can love the things of this world or we can love God. And and He is sufficient. He is enough, right? Our pleasure will be unfading. Our security will be eternal, right? So what do we do? We we didn't have a chance to read all three chapters, but in in 18.4, God cries out, Come out of the world, my people. Right? Come out of her, my people. Why? Lest you take part of her sins and lest you share in her plagues. Come out. Come out. We'll make a case another day today. We're never going to judge. God's going to judge the world. But our job is to, is to not partake of it. To come out of it. If you're in that place... You've been overwhelmed and you don't see any way out. Cry out to God, but also cry out to someone in this room. And and they will help you. They will walk beside you as you find a a life-giving path, as you find a way to leave the entanglements of the world in a way that, that brings life, not takes it away. Just think of the blast zone of 
of the, tra- the tragic death last week, the blast zone of it just affected hundreds of lives. Hundreds of lives. If you're, in, if you're entangled in the ways of the world, cry out and let someone help you walk out in a way that gives you life and blesses the people around you, not destroy them. Okay? But secondly, use praise to reorient your desires toward God. It's actually interesting in the scripture we're challenged to lust after God. Sounds so strange to our ears, doesn't it? But intensely desire God. And the, and the ticket to that, the entry point is gratefulness for what he's done and praise for who he is. In Revelation 19, 1 through 4, is uh, the angels are all just falling down in worship. There's this great worship scene in heaven. Why are they worshiping? Because God has proven himself faithful. They're reorienting their desires toward him. Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great, Revelation 19.5. But I want to take it one step further. Um, Praise is not something you do for a couple minutes in worship on Sunday mornings. Um, Worship is something much greater. It involves your your mouth, yes, but involves your whole being, body, soul, and spirit with all that you are and all that you have and all that you do. Let your life bring glory to God alone. We have a phrase in, in the Reformed Church, solely, it's Latin phrase, soli deo glory. Gloria, right? Soli deo glory to God alone. Be the glory. Let me give you the long version of it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Would you say that with me? Is it up on the screen? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Soli Deo. Gloria. Oh, if you're in that place where you need help, um, we're here for you. Please, please let us walk beside you. And it might be that your journey helps someone else find life as well. Pray with me, would you? Hmm. God, there's probably people online and maybe even people here in the room who wondered if the walls would fall down when they walked in to the sanctuary of God. That little statement that we use to tease one another is, is so false, God. Your greatest desire is for your children to come home. Your greatest desire is for your children to return to you. For us to realize that that Jesus did it all. He did it for us so that we wouldn't have to. God, is it possible today that you would let us put our weight down on your faithfulness, not ours? 
that you would allow all those voices of condemnation from outside of us and especially the ones from inside of us to be silenced by the truth that Jesus Christ has done it for us. God, may may today we recognize that even in our faithlessness, you have been faithful. So God, we uh, invite you to move among us even as we sing this closing song. When we need forgiveness, God, grant us forgiveness. When we need strength and courage to boldly stand against a world which is which is destroying lives, then God, give us that courage to stand. God, when we just need to crawl up into your lap and, and say, Daddy, I need you today. Grant us the strength, courage to do that. And God, we will declare, great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name.